This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. It was recently announced that uh, former Israeli minister Yossi Belin, one of the architects of the Oslo Accords, together with Hiba Husseini, um, are expected to present their plan for a confederation in this country uh, to the United States and to the United Nations uh, and to discuss what this could mean, where it could lead. I asked my friend uh, Yoel Oz, an activist, founder of the Abrahamic Movement NGO and author of Abrahamic Federation, a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, to come and join me on the program. Uh, Yoel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. So, uh, as I said, Balin and Husseini are going to present their confederation plan to the West. First of all, why is this important? I mean, people are coming up with plans all the time. Uh, I'm of the opinion that uh, releasing plans is only relevant if it's going to be featured in the news, but this is being featured in some news. Uh, and I think that uh, Yossi Balin is one of the architects of the Oslo Accords and the two-state paradigm, um, shifting over to a confederation model uh, might look interesting on the surface, although I'm not convinced that this isn't just the same old two-state paradigm repackaged. What do you think? So, yeah, it's significant that it's coming from Yossi Balin. In 2015, he wrote a piece uh, in the New York Times where he came out um, in favor of confederation. Um, and it appears, he, according to the news reports, that this is something he's been working on for the past two years. Um, they've uh, they've written a hundred page book on uh, where they go into the details. None of that has been uh, released yet. Uh, he's sort of, I think, creating some um, hype before he meets with uh, the Secretary General of the UN and uh, Deputy Secretary of uh, State of the United States, Wendy Sherman. I think he's also, I read that he's meeting with um, an advisor to the Biden administration in the White House. Um, so it's significant because he's, as you said, one of the architects of Oslo. He's also one of the leaders of the Geneva Initiative, um, which was also working to uh, advance a two-state solution, which I have now heard is losing their funding. And I, whether the timing is connected uh, or not is also an interesting uh, uh, matter at hand. Um, but it, what it's basically saying is that Balin is moving away from, or he has moved away from the idea of separation uh, into two uh, separate states, um, which would involve the uprooting of you know hundreds of thousands of um, Israelis living in uh, Yudan and Shomron. Um, the current um, uh, plan, um, we know just some of the details based, there were, there were two articles, one in the Jerusalem Post, one in, um, in the Times of Israel, and in the Hebrew media, as of yesterday, the only article that I saw was on Arutz Sheva. And Arutz Sheva, they actually interviewed him, and so there were some quotes uh, from from him in the in the article, um, and the what is being proposed um, is that there would be uh, land swaps um, in the 
the major settlement blocks, he does, it's not specified which ones, but it's usually referred to as Mala, Dumim, Gushetzion, and maybe Ariel, um, that they would be um, uh, annexed to Israel. The Palestinians would receive an equal amount of land in compensation, I guess. Um, and that the Israelis living outside of the blocks, and he counts maybe like 150,000 of them, um, would become, would remain Israeli citizens, but would be residents of a state of Palestine. Um, there would be open, he, he actually, I didn't see what they say about open borders, um, but there would be coordination in areas regarding to infrastructure and water and, um, you know, the, the areas where there, and some security. Um, but, um, I think that what was, uh, what was mentioned in the Arutz Sheva article was they were asked, well, who would be responsible for the security of the Jews living in, uh, in Yudan Shamron, who, would be under a Palestinian state and they described it as a human experiment and he sort of was saying um, that uh, well, well when they find out that Sahal the IDF is leaving they'll be given the option if they want to stay or if they want to leave um, and it was sort of a kind of like well you're taking a risk and uh, that's up to you but uh, Israel has to separate because um, it's more important uh, to maintain um, a Jewish uh, democracy and that it's still basically separation of sorts, um, in my opinion, um, but it's, a, it, it's significant because on the left, there seems to be this shift, this acknowledgement that um, the Jews living over the green line are not going anywhere. When you say um, left, you mean you mean the liberal Zionists? Uh, I'm thinking like Meretz. Right, not not actual leftists. Meretz, Labor Party, um, I, you know, the it, I'm, I'm talking within the Israeli political spectrum, um, uh, the Israeli political left. Um, the, you know, the, the, the center party like uh, Yesh Atid, you know, where they fall, you know, they're, they're a little. They're they're more amorphous, um, and they're 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 a pretty secular uh, party. But you know they have a little bit more of a um, you know edgier attitude towards uh, towards the Palestinians. But they're still anachnu kan sham. They you know they want separation. They they are not interested in really uh, living with. Uh, the Arabs in uh, in Eretz Israel, it's they, they would rather just have them behind the, the wall or whatever, and be satisfied with Tel Aviv and Gushdan, and uh, enough with uh, separation, basically. But the, there are all kinds of problems, security problems, and uh, political difficulties with separation. But um, and a number of Israelis who just oppose it, and even though right now we have certain parties in power who might like the idea of separation from the Palestinians and the two-state paradigm or a repackaged two-state paradigm. You know, first of all, to be in power, they've it seems at least publicly that they've had to put aside their positions on territorial issues. 
Uh, and also, th they see that the trajectory of Israeli society doesn't help them politically, meaning the demographic trajectory of Israeli society is only increasing the strength of the Knesset factions more committed to the land of Israel and less open to territorial compromise. Correct. Correct. I, I think that's correct. Um, I think that um, the, uh, I guess, left, center-left uh, Israeli parties are, um, they're becoming a little bit aware, more aware of the fact that they, they simply don't have the numbers um, to, uh, to, to lead um, a, a coalition. Um, in all of the previous, you know, we had uh, four elections within two years. Um, the right-wing parties all basically got up to 60 votes, and that was and Netanyahu couldn't get above the 60 threshold to 61. Um, Bennett uh, was able to create this uh, coalition of you know, strange bedfellows that's just at 61 with the inclusion of uh, of Ram. Um, and they have sort of agreed to this rotation that in two years, Yair Lapid will become uh, prime minister. But in the meantime, there's going to be no activity on the Israeli-Palestinian front. What will happen once Yair Lapid becomes prime minister? That's, uh, that's anyone's guess. Um, will Bennett stay in the coalition? If Lapid, you know, offers concessions, will that bring down the government? You know, will the Likud uh, come in to replace uh, or to or, or to be added to the coalition if uh, it's no longer under uh, the leadership of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu? That's also an open question. Um, and uh, we could go to new elections. You never know. I mean, with a with a with a majority of one sixty one fifty nine. Right now, they seem to all want to keep everything holding together but you know this is israeli politics so you we're, never know who who decides to bring down the government right and we're also talking about parties that are for the most part polling at less than what they currently have with the exception of the Lapid, uh at, at least the last poll that i've seen so it's in, yeah i haven't been following the polls so it doesn't um, seem to be in anybody's interest to disrupt this coalition to bring down this coalition uh, but i want to i i want to um address some of your framing and i know that at first you might find this a little bit tangential and insignificant but it, it really will help clarify what i want to say about what we're actually talking about I, I think it often creates bad analysis when we try to apply the western political spectrum to israeli society i think terms like liberal conservative right left secular religious are actually very very Western, in some cases very Christian um, framings, and I think they cause us to often misunderstand what's going on in our own society and in our own political system. What I find helpful uh, is actually to look at the different tribal identities of the Jewish people, um, like based on like a mystical interpretation, uh, the understanding of our sages when it comes to the different tribal identities, and each one, and, and you can see, like when you really like study these things, you can really see the personalities of the tribal identities shining into the world today through different sectors of the Jewish people, uh, especially in Israeli there's, society. 
there's a there's a famous Israeli song called Shevet Achim Vachayot, which is uh, sung you know a lot around uh, Yom Atzmaut, and there was a parody of it done on uh, Eretz Nehederet called Eretz Shvatim Machanot. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's a very uh, biting uh, parody, but this idea of Eretz Shvatimu Machanot, you know, that it's tribes and I'd say political camps, uh, if you will, I think, um, I think is an accurate description. Uh, so mm-hmm. I agree with you that there is a tribal, um, there's a tribal element. And I do think that with the exception of Ram, we can call all of the parties currently in the coalition, Yosef parties, the parties representing the tribal force of Yosef. And uh, I'm associating Yosef with the um, part of Jewish identity or the expression of Jewish identity that is able to manage the material world very well, is very concerned with the material well-being of the Jewish people, and in some cases also humanity at large. Um, Yosef, I think, also focuses on what we share in common with uh, other nations, especially the more dominant nations uh, and civilizations of any given period. And I think that our, and I think that Zionism should be understood as the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, uh, as uh, we see, you know, kind of the, the Gona Vilna hinting to in Kolator and, and Rav Kook making more explicit. And I think that if we look at Yosef. Are you referring to like Hamisped Birushalayim with yes. Rav Kook? So, yes, yes, yeah. we, yes, that's right. Uh, Rav Kook's eulogy of Herzl. And if you're looking for a great elaboration on that, I would check out Manitou's Sefer on that eulogy. So I would say that the Zionism, what we call Zionism, and I think Zionism, you know, we, we have to probably be careful how we define that because I think that a lot of a lot of self-identified Zionists would use the word as a synonym for Jewish liberation and often uh, apply that term to movements and figures that predated by thousands of years. Uh, I think that I'm more comfortable looking at Zionism as one of many Jewish liberation movements, uh, one link in a very long chain, but a link that happened to have been A, very successful, and B, very unique in that it utilized uh, European understandings of nationalism and even tools of colonialism. And perhaps that's what made it successful. It's a good question. Uh, that would be a tangential conversation. Oh, that's uh, a sharp insight. That's a sharp insight. I agree. And, and I think Zionism also has a very dialectical relationship with the Haskalah, with the Jewish Enlightenment. Because on the one hand, I think the Haskalah created the conditions that allowed for Zionism to come into being. On the other hand, Zionism is very much a rejection of many of the core ideas of the Haskalah, especially when it came to Jewish identity. Uh, but now that Zionism has kind of fulfilled its revolutionary role, meaning it, it rebuilt the Jewish people materially, like it, it brought us back to our land, it revived our language, it created a lot of infrastructure, you know, focusing, of course, on what we share in common with other nations. It built the vessel, what we call the state of Israel. But now, because we haven't graduated to the next stage of actually filling that vessel with content, which I don't think Yosef can do. I think you need tribes like Yehuda to come and do that. Tribes that are more focused on what's unique about us, Jewish identity, our Torah, our history, our destiny, etc. cetera. Um, I, I think within Israeli society, this force of Yosef, which also includes what I would call Zionism as an ideological paradigm that dominates Israeli society, 
has for the most part um, regressed into an assimilationist tendency. And that's expressed through certain groups within Israeli society wanting to be what we can call an amkacholamim, like a nation like other nations. It's kind of like assimilationist impulse kind of kicks in. And now that we're a nation again, now that we've, you know, created our own brand of European nationalism, instead of just being included in German nationalism or French nationalism as the maskilim, as the Jewish advocates of the Haskalah wanted, um, now we're a nation on the world stage, so we can assimilate that way. Uh, and I think that in Israeli society today, there is a fundamental conflict that really permeates almost every um, social and political issue that's hotly debated. And that is a conflict between Western liberalism and Jewish nationalism. And I think ultimately, the goal is not for one side to win over the other. Um, I think the goal is really to transcend the either or and to create a uniquely Hebrew model of universalism that can contribute new ways of thinking, new models, new structures, and answers to a lot of very pressing questions, not just in the state of Israel, but throughout the world, uh, dealing with questions of social justice, you know, minority rights, uh, systemic oppression, and how to combat those. Like, I think that we need to, we, we need to do the work, and that's, you know, part of the work we need to do now that we've come back to the stage of history, of actually creating a uniquely Jewish model of universalism that could actually challenge Western liberalism on its own ideological turf. Uh, but what I see happening today, and, and this is where I'm gonna bring it back to our conversation about Yossi Belin and this confederation plan, what I tend to see happening is this two-state paradigm, whether it's in the form of Oslo or in the form of confederation, kind of being driven by a desire to maintain the state of Israel as a part of the like neoliberal Western order and to be part of the West, to have a certain kind of society. I think often in Israeli society, when people use the word democracy, they often mean it as a synonym for Westernization, like meaning I would define democracy as any system that empowers people to be able to influence the structures they live under that could be through voting, it could be through a participatory model. I would actually favor a participatory model, um, but I think that that to me is democracy. And that's not how it's often used in Israeli society. I think it's often used as like a, a word for, for defending the Western character or desired Western character of the state of Israel. And I think that there's a feeling that, and, and actually Ari Shavit wrote about this in his book, My Promised Land. There is a feeling among what we can call the Yosef Jews, the Yosef Israelis, the Zionists, actually, that there are certain threats. There are certain populations in this country who are threats to this idea of Israel existing as like a Jewish Rhodesia. And the, there are the Palestinians. That's maybe the number one threat. There are the Haredim. And they're the Mitachlim, the Judeans, the West Bank Jews, or what we call the national religious. I, by the way, think it's really ironic that Bezalel Smotrich calls his party the religious Zionist party because I actually don't see his party or the factions he ran with as Zionist parties. I think they represent something else. They're not expressions of the Yosef force. But I think that, I think for decades, actually, the two-state model was used as a way of us avoiding the crucial questions we need to confront. Can we have a state that is deeply Jewish, 
fully democratic, fully inclusive in the entire land of Israel, or at least between the river and the sea. And what we were what we were made to believe is that we can't, that we have to give up one out of three. And the conclusion, certainly among the Yosef camp, was what we want to give up is land. We want to basically gerrymander an artificial demographic majority, a Jewish demographic majority, cut out as many non-Jews as possible by giving away the land under their feet um, in order to maintain this kind of, you know, a Jewish demographic majority in a European style nation state with Jewish decorations. And I think the fact that the two-state solution didn't work forces us to confront real questions about what makes a state Jewish, what makes a state democratic. Can we create a single state here that is inclusive of the other and offers a dignified place of partnership to the other without compromising, not only without compromising on its Jewishness, but actually maybe as an expression of its Jewishness. Meaning, for example, like on this issue, if we were to really unpack uh, the concept of Gir Toshav in the 21st century and try to uh, apply it uh, in a way that really works for Palestinians, and not just Palestinians, I would even say Sudanese, uh, asylum seekers, uh, Filipino workers, whatever. Or Noach. Right, or, or potential Noach, let's say, right? Like all the non-Jews here, if we were to create this model in a way that allows them to feel like winners in the story they're living in, in their national narratives or, or their individual narratives, depending on who we're talking about, uh, I think that would be a tremendous Kiddush Hashem, first of all. It would be an example of us actually finding real, relevant, workable models within our identity instead of feeling like we have to look for that elsewhere all the time, and, and which doesn't work. I mean, you know, you mentioned we had four elections in the course of two years. Part of that is because we have a political system that doesn't really fit our identity. Uh, and it's not only us, like India has a similar problem. The British ruled there too. The British were forced to leave and India, like Israel, maintained many features of the British colonial system. And so our system is a, is a weird uh, hybrid of the British Westminster system with the old style of the first and second and following the Zionist Congresses, because when the Zionist Congresses were established, they couldn't uh, create representation based on uh, geography, but it was based on ideological group. Mm -hmm. So the political parties that we have today, which are basically ideological parties um, or the, uh, the heirs of ideological parties, it goes back to the Zionist Congress, and it's mixed with this British parliamentary type of system. And it's, but it's, it wasn't, uh, they, they didn't really put in thought as to what should a Jewish polity uh, look like. It was sort of like, we have, we have this amount of time to establish the state now that the British are leaving and let's Ben-Gurion's like all right let's just get it let's get it up and 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 going and so they had the uh the Moetza Ta'am originally they, they were the ones that signed the the declaration of independence and then uh, they had a provisional uh constituent assembly I don't remember when they started calling it the Knesset but um the roots are yeah they just sort of 
it's like a very it's sort of it, it it wasn't done bechavana it wasn't done with like well the only i'd say the only thing that it that is quote jewish was that they selected the number of 120 um to represent the the unshakeness at Hagdola from the time of uh the return from the babylonian exile so that was that was a little bit of a symbolic piece that that's they, a separate story yeah. right but other than that they essentially put a jewish flag on a british colonial system and they called it a jewish state. <laughs> and, and that's part of the problem we haven't gone i mean right now i would say that the jewish character of the state of israel is very hard and very shallow um, and I think it's way too Jewish for Palestinians, way too othering uh, and exclusivist for Palestinians. I don't think it's Jewish enough for Haredim. I think both of those populations are extremely important because they're two of the fastest growing populations between the river and the sea. Uh, I think that, you know, for me, instead of thinking of different ways to divide the land, uh, which anyway I don't think can work, we should be focusing on a Jewish character that is soft and deep. And maybe even somewhat dependent on our level of Jewish education to even recognize. Meaning, it could be that a state that's a state with a Jewish character that's not insecure and shallow um, wouldn't feel threatened by how many Palestinian babies are born, by demographic threats, etc. I think that a, a state that's confident in its Jewishness with deep Jewishness. Um, you know, would be able to also be soft and not throw the Jewish character of the state into the faces of non-Jews, meaning make it inclusive and inclusive in a deeply Jewish way. I mean, I think that's more the model uh, because I, I really like, you know, from what I've read, I don't see this confederation plan as anything other than the two-state solution with, you know, okay, with another layer of cooperation, but that, you know, similar layers of cooperation were built into the Oslo Accords too. So in my book, Abrahamic Federation, um, I dealt mostly with the political structure issues and I touched on Abrahamic symbolism in the most rudimentary way uh, because my audience was sort of trying to be, uh, I wanted it to, to be short and I also wanted it to reach as wide of an audience uh, as possible. but. If I go deeper into what does it mean to be Abrahamic, what does it mean to have a Brit, um, uh, an alliance, which is what a federation really is, with other Bnei Avraham, uh, or Bnei Beit Avraham is the term uh, that's used in the the Torah. Uh, you can you ha there are people who are Bnei Ishmael who they had there was a Brit done before um, the birth of Yitzchak with Ishmael. And there was also a Brit at the same time done with uh, Bnei Beit Avraham, Miknat Kaspo, Yilidei Beito. So mm -hmm. there is a whole you know, story of the, of the Brit of Avraham. The Brit through Yitzchak is obviously a very special, unique Brit. Um, but there is also a notion, I think, within biblical uh, texts of the Avraham as Avhamon Goyim, that his progeny through Yitzchak have a special role, but he also has a role that's more universal, more more <laughs> global. So that's something that I would, you know, it, with you, I'm happy. I'd be happy to to flesh that out. Mm -hmm. I think with the with a less Jewishly educated audience, it could be. I think they might find it interesting, um, but it's not one that I've really uh, uh worked out um but it is something in the back of my mind 
when I think about what does it mean to be Abrahamic, um, you know, it is it is something that I think about. So just based on what you just said, I happen to see, uh, and if anybody's interested in, in going deeper into this, I have uh, podcasts on Parshat Lech Lecha and Vaira. Um, I really do see Abraham's journey as one where he begins as, I guess, what we can call a proto-Muslim. Like he begins as somebody who is leading a movement, a movement to spread awareness of the creator uh, and loyalty to the creator. Uh, I think the only real difference at first between Avraham or, or Avram and some of his predecessors like Shem and Ever is that um, Avram, he was more confrontational in his approach to the idolatrous world. In the Midrashic representation, I don't think that that's in the Pshat. Uh... First of all, I, I take the Midrashic representation very seriously. But I think that... Uh, so do I. I'm, ju I'm just saying that if you're just reading, you yeah. know, the text of the Torah without that, you're not, you're not, you're not going to see the story, for example, you know, of uh, yeah, Abraham yeah. and the Terach's idol shop. <laughs> right. um, it's clearly an important part of the, of the Torah Shabbat right. understanding of, uh, of Avram. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Don't mean to quibble. So Avram, before receiving the prophecy of Lech Lecha, before receiving like this mission to go to a very specific piece of territory and create a nation uh, there, um, he was a very successful spiritual leader with a lot of followers. I mean, no, no one told him there was no prophetic instruction to take his followers with him to the land of Israel, but he did. Because I think that for, for him, even though he was able to internalize intellectually and, and accept the idea that, yes, we are going to create a nation, it's going to happen, one day we're going to have children, right? We're, we're also talking about a, a relatively elderly man with no kids and a lot of followers when he receives his prophecy. I think he was able to accept that intellectually, but meanwhile, day to day, he doesn't have kids yet, and he's a very successful spiritual leader. So I think it was hard for him to give that up initially. And I think we see this theme kind of repeat itself in his journey until he eventually does accept it. But in terms of Yishmael and Yitzchak, the, the way I tend to look at it is that Yishmael is the inheritor of Avraham's original mission, and Yitzchak is the inheritor of Avraham's second mission, his Lech Lecha mission, the, the mission to create a nation in the land of Israel. But ultimately, I think that these two missions are meant to work in partnership. Like, I don't think there needs to be any contradiction between them, any conflict between them. Uh, in fact, it's interesting in the Targum Onkelos, which is like, an you, you know it, but the listeners might not, that it's an Aramaic translation of our Torah. And what's interesting is that, and this is roughly 600 years, I think, before the birth of Muhammad. Um, when we're talking about our non-Jewish allies, specifically the Kenim, uh, the Kenites, who were mm -hmm. non-Jews, allied to us, living in our land, Noahites for all intents and purposes, when Uncleus translates that part uh, of the text into Aramaic, he refers to them as Muslimai and Islamai. He uses words like Muslim and Islam to refer to them. And so that causes me to suspect that Muhammad might have actually been trying to create an Ohad movement when he initially created Islam. And I think that ultimately the, the mission of Ishmael and the mission of Yitzchak need to be happening in partnership. And and I think that that's something, you know, obviously we need to work on. You know, it, it's not the case today. And, and maybe it's not the case partially because of the 
Western and colonial features of Zionism that have been grandfathered into the state of Israel and are, of course, included within this ideological paradigm, meaning instead of thinking about how we can separate so we can be part of the West and they could just go be, you know, quote unquote, savages over there on the other side of the wall, uh, maybe we should be thinking about focusing on what we share in common so we can live together in this country as partners. I've discovered that when you start talking simply about religion with Muslims, um, that there's a tremendous amount of uh, overlap and I have a, a friend who's a Salafist um, in America. Uh, he studied for 10 years in uh, Medina. And uh, he and I, he loves the Rambam. <laughs> and uh, we don't talk about um, Zionism or Israeli politics, Israeli-Palestinian politics. But when it comes to religion itself, he, he often says that... Uh, Islam is Judaism for Muslims, and uh, Judaism is Islam for Jews. That's his, uh, his description. And when I speak with Muslims and I explain to them in their language, you know, that I am a Muslim of the Deen and Sharia of Musa, alayhi salam, of Moses of blessed memory, they go, okay. <laughs> and there's like a... You know, because there's there's a great respect. Obviously, there are areas of, of, of disagreement and, and uh, uh, theological difference, but they're minor compared with the theological differences with uh, with Christianity, for example. Sure. I've encountered Muslim scholars who have said, you know, yes, Allah gave different Sharias to different Ummas, and to be a good Muslim, the children of Israel should live according to the Torah, and we should live according to the Quran. And I've also met Muslim scholars who say, no, the Quran abrogates everything that came before it. And the only way to be a good Muslim is to accept this specific text. And, and I think that, you know, it's fluid in history, which school, which stream, which approach is most dominant uh, within the Islamic world, just as there are different schools that gain and lose dominance, you know, over the centuries within the Torah world. Uh, but mm -hmm. as the nation of Israel, um, you know, if we're serious about engaging the Muslim world and finding ways to meaningfully partner, then we should also recognize that it might be in our interests to try and create the conditions for the flourishing of that multi-covenantist perspective to grow, you know, to whatever extent that's in our hands. Meaning, you know, certainly within the Muslim communities, in the land of Israel under Jewish sovereignty, maybe we can have a meaningful dialogue and, or maybe we can find ways to show them that we are the children of Israel uh, and not the Jews, because I know those are two very different identities. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, um, I found uh, that when you start like having a conversation that the Rambam uh, quotes Al-Farabi, for example, in the Mora Nebuchim, mm -hmm. uh, numerous times. Um, and his son, uh, Rabbi Avram ben Rambam, was influenced in his, uh, like Rabbi Nubachia uh, ibn Pakuda in Chovot HaLavavot, uh, Duties of the Heart, they were influenced by some Sufi teachings regarding spiritual development, spiritual advancement, and when you talk about the fact that, you know, we have these, you know, that there's a, that there historically was a conversation between and all of these things were written in Arabic, uh, you know, for example, that there was a conversation going on between Jews and Muslims about spiritual life, about um, philosophical uh, ideas relating to to God and 
uh, and creation and Re reason and revelation. Uh, Rivsadigaon also uh, wrote his uh, major work, Emunot Vedeot, in Arabic. Um, you know, you all of a sudden you discover a common language, um, and I think that that's uh, that's something that we haven't uh, developed enough of. Um, but it's one that I, I I hope to you know I, I um, the Abrahamic movement that uh, that I created is you know it's it's primarily a, a political uh, approach but it's really it's it's I, I call it bridging the spiritual and the political the spiritual has a you know has a very very important uh, role but um, you know I think all of us as uh, I do include the Christians as uh you know as the representatives of uh you know of edom to some extent they're also part of the family um and i think that uh that that's where you and i differ okay okay that's that's fair <laughs> um i think that uh, historically in in uh in jewish literature they were associated rome was associated with uh with edom and i think that there's you know the the Christian use of the uh, what they call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. I think there is a that there is a common language when we're not reading it as in everything is, you know, prefiguring uh, Oto Haish, um, and it's not uh, and and you're actually just but if you're just reading, you know, Psalms and Tehillim and the texts of uh, you know the story, for example, the stories of Avraham. When you're reading them with a Christian audience, you can read, you know, Genesis, Sefer Bereshit. You can, um, you can, you, you there, you have, you have that as a common uh, language. Whereas very often in uh, when I've been involved in uh, Jewish-Muslim dialogue, the first thing they'll ask will be, okay, which son did was Abraham commanded to sacrifice? The Quran doesn't mention which son; it just says his son. But uh, it become for some reason there has been this sort of competition uh, over was it Ishmael or was it Yitzchak? Um, but that's uh, yeah. Anyway, that's. Uh, but I, I think that we the the Abrahamic uh, traditions um, are. Uh, I think each one has its own flavor. I think we are, um, you know, really Bnei Avraham in, in the sense of he was Avraham Avinu. We are children, Bnei Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, you know, Elokeinu Velokei Avotenu, you know, our God and the God of our fathers. Um, it's, a, it's a genealogical, it's a, a hereditary, uh, we're, we're a people and a fa as, a, as a family, um, but we're not exclusive in the sense that it's not just our, our family that is the, the children of, uh, of, of Hashem. We're all the children of Hashem. It's just that uh, we're called B'ni uh, B'chori Israel. Israel is, uh, is the firstborn. And as the firstborn, we have a certain responsibility as, uh, as I believe as a Mamlechet Kohanim and Goy Kadosh, a priestly kingdom and a, and a holy nation, um, in this, I, I like your terminology, Hebrew universalism. I think that that's, um, I think that that's correct. I think that's accurate. Um, I, I think that Israel, uh, the, the, the religion of the Torah, um, is, the mitzvot are, are specific uh, to a specific particular uh, people, but the religion itself is universal. Right. Um, that's the, and, right. The Torah has two religions in it. The Torah has a religion for the world and the specific yes. constitution for the children of Israel. Yes. 
I agree with that. Uh, yeah, I, I guess when it comes to Edom, I, I tend to look at Edom, the fourth empire, as the empire that still controls much of the world that is in the way of our redemption, in the way of our liberation, and maybe in the way of the liberation of all of humankind. I tend to see Israel's role as ultimately freeing humanity from the um, hegemony of the fourth empire. And so it's hard for me to include them in potential partners right now. I think whether it's Christianity, whether it's capitalism, whether it's imperialism, um, I just, you know, whether it's cultural and economic, I just see the fourth empire as the antagonist of this chapter of our people's story. Uh, how to understand the dome and who they represent is, uh, especially I'd, I'd say the, the West, um, you know, there's there's the Christian West and there's the the post-Christian West. I, I see it all as yeah. it's all one or, or different branches of the same, uh, different iterations, different, you know, uh, Edom morphs. I mean, unlike the other three empires before it, it, the fourth empire kind of like morphs over time from the Roman Empire to Christianity to European liberalism, the capitalist system, U.S. imperialism, whatever, you know, however you want to look at it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there's but, a lot uh, to think about on that. But yeah, yeah anyway, going back to so, what we were talking about. Let me ask you, how does your um, your plan, uh, you said, you know, for an Abrahamic federation, first of all, maybe explain to our listeners the difference between Balin's confederation plan and your understanding of federation, whether it's your Abrahamic federation plan or federation plans more broadly. What's the distinction? So I, I'll start out that it... it I actually, my first book was was called Abrahamic Confederation. <laughs> oh. So I was in the Confederation world. I think that these are, you know, terms in political science. The 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 most uh, well known confederation today is the European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, the federation most well known is the United States. Although the United States had an iteration during the Civil War of the Confederate States of America. Um, what a confederation. Uh, ultimately is is that there's more um, independence on the part of the constituent states or uh, or countries uh, they are more so- the question is sovereignty and how we understand what the word uh, sovereignty means um, in the European Union France and Germany are still each one is a sovereign country um, but sovereignty was being er- eroded as Europe the European Union was becoming more of like a super federal state and that's one of the things that triggered things like brexit because the the british were upset about the amount of power that brussels which is the seat of government of the european union the european parliament that they were taking over the you know um independent uh uh nature of uh, of english uh, government so there's always sort of this tension between within federations confederations over how much authority a central government should have how much independence or sovereignty or uh, that the the constituent member um states uh will have so i sort of i i i actually my my first article was called the commonwealth of abrahamic states it was more just sort of like a uh, like the Commonwealth of Nations of the of the British, uh, the former members of the British Empire, it was more of a loose association. And then I I started moving towards confederation, 
and then I started slowly moving towards uh, towards Federation. Um, though the model that I have is still, in some ways, it's a hybrid model. It's it's like Confederation in some ways. Like so, there are people who are in the Federation movement who, when I describe you know the the structure of what I, what I've proposed, they'll say, ah, oh, but that's a Confederation. Uh, I I also spoke with a with a law professor once. Um, and I asked him, you know, what's the difference between uh, federation and confederation? He said it's just a word. You know, it it doesn't uh, you know it doesn't mean anything. So I I think the word federation is also just a, it's 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 lacking three letters. <laughs> I think it's a simpler idea. Uh, I think it can you can make it mean really whatever you want it to mean. Uh, I think it means an alliance. It means uh, a breed um, of sorts. So. Uh, I, I would love the the word Brit Avraham. The problem is Brit Avraham in uh, Judaism is a circumcision. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't want people, it's sort of like, you know, when you give your child a name, think about, you know, the kind of names that, you know, he's going to be teased with. So that I, 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 I don't use the word uh, Brit Avraham um, for, <laughs> for those humorous reasons. Um, but uh, but that's really what. Uh, but it says in, in uh, chapter fourteen uh, of Genesis, uh, before uh, during the war of the four kings and the five kings, that Avram uh, made a breach with uh, uh, Aner, Eshkol, and uh, Mamre, um, and they were behem ba'alei brit Avram. That's sort of where my thinking on all of this actually started was the that verse in um in Sefer Bereshit uh, uh Perak Yudala, chapter chapter 14 but yeah i mean basically a federation i think that look i'm I, I, in the sense that i'm i'm still an american by by birth and by um by education and maybe i haven't uh, thrown it off but um i still think democracy or some de democratic values of, uh, of equality, um, I'm still I'm still committed to those at some at a strong level. I think so. To me, it is important that Palestinians have equal rights, but I believe that they should have voting rights in a separate uh, legislative body. Um, so I think that we can provide them. Um, you know, just like if you're from New York and you go to New Jersey and you're driving on the New Jersey Turnpike and you get stopped for speeding by Jersey State Trooper. You still have all of the federal rights as a U.S. citizen, and and um, you know. But if you get a ticket, you have to, and you want to fight the ticket, you have to go to court in uh, in New Jersey. You have to deal with New Jersey law. We don't we don't even think about it so much. You know, I lived in the Washington DC area. I would travel, you know, to work one uh, during every day. I traveled to Virginia and then into Mar from DC to Virginia and into Maryland and then I would go back and I was in three different jurisdictions, you know, and you don't even uh, you don't even realize it. Um, but I did get a speeding ticket one day in Virginia <laughs> and I had to go to court in Virginia. Uh, so that even though I was uh, a DC resident, um, and uh, yeah, so I think that I think equal rights um, is uh, is important. Um, having the Jewish 
you know, the question is, you know, the voting rights and and the Knesset, and I think you're right about that. For most Israelis, it's about having like a Jewish ethnocracy. Like it's an eth. It's it's not a real. As I think you're correct. It's not like Jewish in the sense that it has real Torah uh, content to it, or at least even even the Torah uh, parties are very very divided. Um, but uh, it's it's more like you know an ethnic, different ethnic Jewish ethnic or Israeli ethnic uh, uh, groups. I think that. Um, you know that's also a, a, a big issue within Israeli identity. Um, you know, secular, or less, you know, less religious. Like, you know, what exactly is Jewish about the identity? You know, and what is, and you know, and the, and this the creation of this new Israeli identity that is uh, its own sort of uh, nationalism. So I think there's Jewish nationalism. And I think there's also. Israeli nationalism. I think that the the they're they're sort of um, just to understand yeah. you. When you say this new Israeli nationalism, do you mean like a uniquely Jewish flavor of European style nationalism? Um, look, I mean, what does it mean to be an Israeli? Is sort of like you know at its you know most base level. Okay, so Hebrew is uh, is clearly an important uh component but so is hummus and falafel and um you know mizrahi music a little bit and if you're ashkenazi in tel aviv it's more european um i think uh you know there's israeli culture um you know that is I, my father's a was israeli and i grew up in america mm -hmm. so i i always was kind of like you know uh, questioning you know what kind of identity do i have and my identity in america was very much jewish um and i'd say in israel it's still very jewish i wouldn't say i'm very israeli i think you know, in a lot of ways, I'm still very American, but it's an identity that comes from, you know, um, certain, you know, it's just geography, the TV shows you watch, the, the books you read, um, you know, so the English language, I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're speaking in English, so um, there is that element, you know, even though I, I'm fluent in Hebrew, I, I speak Hebrew, I I write in Hebrew, um, but my my mamaloshin, my my native tongue is English, and so I I think you know it, it's sort of uh, sometimes it's hard to to break out of those categories. You're often doing as a as an American ole in in Israel, you're often doing a lot of translating, and um, and I, I think even Jew, Jewishly, there's a lot like because everybody speaks Hebrew, we think we, we all speak the same language, but it's not true because I think that if you're educated in, you know, in Talmud, for example, you speak a completely different language than secular Israelis speak. You have a, an awareness uh, of a body of literature, of a style of thinking, you know, of a, of a history, of a heritage of, uh, you know, centuries that uh, is missing in the modern Israeli consciousness. You know, it's funny, I've been here 20 years, but I, I've probably spent most, if not all of that time, living in a very specific 
part of Israeli society. You know, whether I was living in Kiryat Moshe, which is kind of like, you know, the Rav Kook neighborhood of Jerusalem, right? The Mechon Meir, Merkaz When I was living there, Rav Tau lived there, Rav Mordechai Leozitzah lived there. Um, I lived in Malez Eitim. I lived on different mountaintops, you know, in the West Bank and urban neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, in very like national religious circles. Today, I live on a mountaintop just north of Beit El. And even when I was in the army, I was in Netzach Yehuda, which was a very kind of, and at that time, it was before before the destruction of Gush Katif, before the disengagement. So it was a lot of Hilltop youth, you know, a lot of guys from Gush Katif, uh, a lot of also breasts of Chabad, whatever, you know, but, but I've been living, I think the whole time I've been here, I've been living in a very deeply Jewish uh, sector of Israeli society. Uh, and even though I come in contact with uh, I guess what you're portraying is a more uh, less deep sector of Israeli society. I, I know that the sector I'm a part of is growing and that sector is shrinking. And as time progresses, I think those with much more connection, much deeper roots in this land and in this culture and this identity are going to become more and more dominant in society. And I think, obviously, I think that's a good thing, uh, both in terms of our national development and in terms of the potential relationships we can have with our neighbors. Because I think it's ultimately the Jews most deeply rooted in our land, in our identity, in our history, in our culture, in our civilization, that need to be our ambassadors to Palestinian society, to the Muslim world, um, and certainly not guys like Yossi Balin. The guy, I actually, my problem with this whole thing is that Yossi Balin should not be and should have never been our public face to the Arab world. So uh, my father's was from Hulon, uh, Yemenite uh, Jews. So I spent my childhood summers um, in the in the Gush Dan, uh, Merkaz, Tel Aviv uh, area. Um, and then after high school, I, le- I lived in Gush Etzion for, for two years in Yeshiva. Um, but when we made Aliyah, um, we moved to uh, the Merkaz, to Givat Shmuel, which is between Pedach Tikva and, and, and Bnei Brak. And the thing that, and I, but I go to Jerusalem uh, uh, fairly regularly. Um, I'm probably in Jerusalem more than I'm, I am in Tel Aviv because traffic to get to Tel Aviv from here is horrible. But uh, it's it's very much Merkaz uh, kind of uh, kind of location, and what I think I've discovered over time is that there are many different Israeli identities, or many different identities of people between the river and the sea, and everybody thinks that they're authentic, <laughs> and that the other is in some is some way mizuyaf, is in some ways you know not uh not the real thing not authentic the palestinians you know the arab uh, uh population feel like you know we're a, a a transplant and the uh the secular world you know they they feel like you know the non-zionist or anti-zionist Haredi world you know that's you know not what israel is all about and and i and if you're what you're saying also in Yerushalayim, the the feeling towards towards uh, Tel Aviv is uh, is what it is and Haifa has its own uh, identity and the Galil has its own identity and uh, so I, I I think that again going back to the Shvatim um, model I think that you do have two Amim here I think you do have two nations simply by um, by virtue of the of the language 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I think that each nation is made up of Shvatim. The Arabs have a more complicated identity, I think, in some ways than we do, because, you know, they're connected. They have a, they have another identity, which is the Arabic language um, identity uh, and the Muslim identity. Right. So it's, it's different than ours. It's different yeah. than ours. We have layers of identity and they have layers of yes. identity. Correct. I, yes. I think that... that's that I'd say layers of identity is the key term. Um, and um, but yeah, I mean, at, at my core, the the ideas as a Jew that that drive me are the Torah, Shabbat uh, Torah, Shabbat Peh, our history, our philosophy. Um, those, you know, and and uh, yeah, and, and Hebrew. I mean, we're speaking in English, but you know, the Lashon Hakodesh is really you know the holy tongue is you know I I. I Rav Cook, for example, you know, even though he was born in, uh, I think, Latvia, um, you know, he his parents uh, spoke to him only in Lashon Hakodesh, only in Hebrew um, uh, growing up. It's one of the reasons his Hebrew was so beautiful. Um, and the Maskilim, well, you meant going back to going back to them, the the uh, the revival of Hebrew as a as a language of uh, of letters and and a uh, spoken language, I mean, and a poetic language and um, from prose, you know, that was that was also part of our renaissance. Um, you know, the Hebrew today is is, uh, is very functional, but uh, it obviously, you know, it has uh, extremely deep meaning. You know, the, the you, you went, like I mentioned the reading the Psalms with, uh, you know, I, I have Christian friends and we talk about uh, the Psalms together and you know, and and they're very moved by the poetry of Tehillim, but I, and I say to them, but you have no idea how good it is in Hebrew. <laughs> you know, we read it in the original, like you know the or the piyutim or the you know the the litur- the, the liturgy of uh, of of uh, uh, Jewish prayer. You know, there you know, it's it's something that I think that that's you know for me that's really the core but you know i did grow up in english speaking country so i also have a connection to you know you get you you get into you get to israel and you're thrown into the the anglo uh tribe you know so you're you're with the brits and you're with the australians and with the south africans and it's like you know okay so we speak english but like you know we have a little bit you know, there there is a common you know heritage uh, connection, you know, with that British Empire um, story. Um, you know, we all you know we we're, we're we know about Shakespeare in the in the original also. And Shakespeare, Shakespeare's great literature. Um, but you know, if you're an Israeli, like you know, uh, I guess you know they have liyot or loliyot zoya sheila, like to be or not to be. That is the question, but not the same like you know because there's a difference between reading something in the original and, and reading some although you know shakespeare in english is not exactly easy for a modern english speaker to no, understand I mean, either it's, that's languages evolve parallel to biblical hebrew yeah right meaning languages yes, evolve yes. And, and just like when people try to say that modern yeah. hebrew is some new colonial invention it's not it's in some way not. <laughs> right Me- meaning that it's you know just like reading you know hebrew from different time periods or reading english from different time periods won't match the english that's spoke in los angeles today 
you know, languages evolve over time. Uh, I, I want to say in terms of what you said about the different tribes of Israel and each one seeing itself as the most important or central, I, I think that's an important point. Uh, first of all, on a personal level, I've, you know, over the last 20 years, I've experienced myself transitioning, I guess, between, um, I guess, from what I would relate to as the tribal force of Levi to the tribal force of Yehuda. Uh, even though biologically I'm Levi, I'm a Kohen from the tribe of Levi. So biologically, I'm definitely coming from the tribe of Levi. But, you know, on a identity level, I tend to look at Levi and Yehuda as having the same ideological paradigm, the same understanding of Jewish identity and Jewish history and, and Torah, etc. Um, the difference, I think, is that Levi has more trouble understanding the value of the other perspectives, whereas Yuda, what makes Yuda interesting and, and important and a leadership tribe is that Yuda, more than any other tribe, I think, is able to see the value in all the other tribes. And, and that's, I think, what's missing right now. You know, right now, I think most of Israeli society recognizes that we are a collection of different tribal identities, however they want to divide that. But there's this idea that the glue holding us together has to be the values of Yosef, the ideological paradigm of Zionism, um, values of Western liberalism. And I think that we need to challenge that. We need to say that that has its place. First of all, that's brought us very far. I happen to think that Zionism is over and we need to replace it with a new Jewish liberation ideology. But it definitely made tremendous contributions, also made a bit of a mess, also hurt another people. And, and I think what comes next really needs to rectify it. You know, when we look at the first three kings of Israel, I, I really do relate to the Torah as Nivoah. I, I think it's prophecy meant to tell us about ourselves now. And when we look at the first three kings of Israel, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we see Shaul, David, and Shlomo. Okay, I would say Shaul is Tzionut. Shaul is Zionism. Shaul is focused on the material well-being of the Jewish people, the unity of the Jewish people, being strong, being able to defend ourselves in our land. That is the kingship of Shaul. Um, David is the next level, which I actually associate with the national religious community. Uh, many of the Talmudai Rav Kook, the idea of, you know, wanting our state to not just be about the material well-being of our people, but also to express a certain identity, a desire to reconnect with Judea and Samaria in a very strong way. Um, Harabite, there are a lot of people who are interested in, in the temple, but ultimately David cannot build a temple. David fights the wars, and we have many institutions today, whether it's in Eli, Atzmona, or elsewhere, that produce, you know, national religious super soldiers. Like, David is a warrior, but it's ultimately Shlomo that's what I would call the Hebrew Universalist stage, the stage that's able to actually connect to humanity in a very positive way and influence humanity in a very positive way. But when you look at, uh, and this might be controversial, when you look at the last major action David takes, this is at the end of Shmuel Bet, before transitioning to the Shlomo stage, David has to acknowledge and rectify the crimes of Shaul against non-Jews living under our rule, the Givonim, hmm. right? Meaning that I think in order for the national religious, specifically my camp, and, and, I, and I mean it, when I say national religious, I don't mean it broadly. I really mean the Kav and maybe a few other, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a, a very specific ideology, right? I think 
It's specifically the national religious who have to, in order for us to get to the Shlomo stage, the Hebrew Universalist stage, acknowledge and work to rectify the way Zionism hurt another people. And I was very disappointed, I'll be honest. I was so excited and so hopeful at the possibility of a government that would have included Shas and the Ashkenazi Haredim and Smotrich and Noam and Ben Gvir and Mansour Abbas. I really wanted to see Ra'am sit together with the Haredi and national religious parties together and Likud. Uh, and it, it was especially frustrating that it was Smotrich of all people who really prevented that from happening. And, and that showed me we are not ready, meaning my camp is not ready. My camp is not ready to take the necessary step forward in order to advance the Geula process as I see it needing to advance. So for me, that was, that, that was very disappointing, a little bit frustrating, but also an educational experience because I realized that no matter what ideas I have or, or a few people around me have, that's not where the camp is at. That's not what the camp is ready for. Although to his credit, I, I think Rav Tau was definitely ready for such a government. Like Rav Tau did say that Smotrich should sit together with uh, Mansour Abbas, if I remember correctly. So I think that xenophobia is sort of like a, a natural human instinct. And when uh, you're talking about two peoples that have been at war, you know, for a century, and a lot of blood has been been spilled, and a lot is a lot of blood has been spilled in the name of God, you know, I understand why the Palestinian Arab Muslim is viewed as the Oyev, as the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could be because, you know, Growing up in New York, I grew up in a melting pot, you know, a multi-ethnic uh, society. Um, so people who were different, you know, it didn't it didn't phase me, um, and I was able to and and I was able to, you know, I I, I certainly grew up with uh, an animosity towards radical Islamic extremism, and certainly after uh, 9/11 and. Um, the Second Intifada and, uh, you know, a lot of the Hamas uh, attacks, you know, I did not have a very positive uh, association uh, with, uh, with Muslims. Um, but the social media era uh, changed that. Um, and I started, I'd say one of the things that I think is different for me today is that my understanding of the Muslim world and of the Arab world is more nuanced Mm-hmm. Um, than it was when I was a teenager uh, in the late 90s or, you know, in my early 20s uh, after uh, after 9-11. Um, and, you know, I think that, I think even one of the interesting things about the Abraham Accords is that it shows Jews are not racist, <laughs> you know. We're okay with Arabs. We're okay, you know. <laughs> Jews are flying to Dubai. They want to have. They want to do business. They 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 feel a cultural uh, kinship. Um, and the Emiratis, to their credit, have done a tremendous amount in terms of um, building religion as a force of goodwill and uh, and common uh, care for for humanity and brotherhood. And, um, you know, I think that that I, I think that Israelis 
when you say to them, you know, not all, you know, there are Muslims like the Emiratis, and you under, and to understand that not all of not all Muslims and not all of Islam is the same. And you know, when they say, oh, you know, uh, Mansur Abbas is from the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, I think that they don't know the difference between the northern branch and the southern branch, and that you know, Mansur Abbas's uh, mentor was a close uh, personal friend of Rav Menachem Fruman and. We're sort of seeing the fruits of that old, that original dialogue that Rav Fruman was making with uh, with Muslim with Muslim spiritual uh, figures. The you know the 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 very fact that a that a Muslim Brotherhood person is speaking about um, you know uh, coexistence with the Jews is something we should be celebrating. You know, instead of uh, <laughs> you know this is a this is a major accomplishment. This is a win. You know, it's not it's not the uh, it's not the end. It's not the best. It's not like, you know, but I think, you know, it's something that we should be trying to build off of. But I understand the you know, the there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hate. And, you know, the it's already over 100 years of conflict. I understand. And and that's not you're right. It's not. I think racism is the wrong word. Uh, I think the, the correct term might be ethnic beef. Like meaning there's a an ethnic conflict between at least from the Israeli perspective. I think from the Palestinian perspective, it's an anti-colonial struggle. But from the Israeli side, I think it's perceived as a national conflict between two peoples and uh, and that's been going on for over a hundred years now. And uh, untangling that is complicated. In any case, I, I have to tell you when it comes to this whole idea of confederation, I can't get on board. Um, I'm coming from the perspective and from the camp that won't accept any foreign sovereignty over the land of Israel. It's just a non-starter for me. Um, I am obviously happy to create the type of Jewish state, what I experience as a Jewish state, that will be inclusive and uh, create dignified space for the other and obviously include them in our democratic process. Of course, I, I support a participatory democracy, as I mentioned earlier, uh, which I think makes demography almost irrelevant anyway. How would you define participatory democracy? I, don't know. I would define it. There's different flavors of participatory democracy, but the Jewish flavor I have in mind is based on the captains of 10 model from Parshat Yitro. It would basically involve me and nine other people on my mountain getting together Sunday night to talk about everything from road safety to education to diplomacy and, you know, defense. And these days, I guess, COVID measures as well. And, um, and select one person to be a captain of 10, which is for argument's sake, say it's me. Then I go to a second meeting on Monday night with nine other captains of 10 from different neighborhoods, maybe inside Betel. And then let's say I become the captain of hundreds, right? So I'm, I'm a captain of hundreds and I go to a meeting with nine other captains of hundreds uh, on the third night right from the whole area let's say like north of jerusalem from psagot and ofra and betel and you know uh and maybe shiloh and eli and uh you know and then eventually somebody goes to knesset and every week a captain has to go back to their meeting and say what they did in knesset and they can be recalled each week at any one of those levels meaning at any at any one of those levels, they can be told, you know what? You're not our captain anymore. You did not represent us. We told you to do X and you did Y. You're no longer representing us. Anybody, everybody should have the right to be part of a group of 10. Um, nobody should be forced. 
meaning that uh, if somebody decides, you know what, things are running great in this country, I'd rather drink a beer and watch soccer, great. But if somebody feels either, I, I mean, the people who would be participating, obviously, are people who either have like a vision for what the country should be, or feel that there's something wrong that they want to fix. And that's, I think, good. And I think that's a model that would be much more democratic than essentially encouraging people to shut off their thinking, look the other way for four years, but go and, you know, uh, fulfill your civic duty on election day and vote for, I mean, in the United States, I think it's a joke. I think the United States is not a democracy at all. It's a corporatocracy because in most races, it's really two candidates who are essentially the same person uh, most of the time. Like they went to the same schools, they come from the same kind of families, they're being funded by the same corporations and lobbyists. And no matter which one wins, it's actually those who fund their campaigns who make policy and not the people who voted for them. So people aren't empowered in that system at all. Uh, whereas in a participatory democracy, I think to be involved, to have a say, by definition requires you to either know or learn the issues. I mean, just by virtue of attending a meeting every week on Sunday night, uh, a person would have to learn what's going on, would be listening to the conversation, developing an opinion. And there's no such thing as like looking the other way for four years and then getting the same democratic voice as the poli-sci professor, meaning democracy has to be democratic. It has to actually empower people and it can't just be an illusion of people power. So it's a larger conversation, but I like that because I think that's both more democratic than the current system, but also more deeply Jewish. Uh, than the current system. And, and I think it also deals with the question of demography in a way that uh, that doesn't treat it like a threat, meaning it actually makes demography almost not a threat at all, because it would just be based on, again, those with a vision for what the country should be and those who feel that they need to fix something. And I think that could, you know, depending on the policies, the better the policies and the better people feel, um, the less disgruntled people will be getting involved. Very interesting. Uh, Any, anyway, lot, lot to, yeah, that, that's that's uh, very, very, um, very original. A uh, lot to think about. I have to. I, I appreciated um, your your explanation of that. Well, I, um, I appreciate your I, time. This has been a great oh, conversation, and yeah. we, we're over an hour already. This might be one of the longest <laughs> that I've done. Um, there's probably so much more to say, and maybe I'll bring you back on another time, and we can do this again. Sure. But really, uh, Yoel Oz, uh, can you just let listeners know where they can find you, where they can learn more about your work? Uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook. Um, it's uh, facebook.com slash Yoel, Y-O-E-L dot O-Z. Um, our website, it's not, it needs to be uh, updated, but it's uh, www.abrahamic.com. Dot org. Uh, you can reach me by email, yoeloz at gmail.com. And uh, if you search uh, on Amazon, uh, yoeloz, you'll be able to find my book, uh, Abrahamic Federation. It's a pretty short read. Uh, it was meant, uh, it was written with the intent of being read, not just to sit uh, right. <laughs> sit on a bookshelf collecting dust. If listeners are boycotting Amazon, where else can they go to find your book? <laughs> send me an email. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a PDF. <laughs> All right, and please send me a PDF. Okay. I'd like to see it. I as will. Well. All right, y'all, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, listeners, if you want to check out the show notes to this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 70.